0: Welcome to episode 12 of the Eastridge Investigations podcast. In today's episode, we'll discuss Gary's officer-involved shooting from 1979 with the Oklahoma City Police Department.
1: So this time on the podcast, we're going to take a little bit of a personal turn and take a look at an officer-involved shooting from uh, that officer's perspective. Uh, first up is is gary eastridge one of our one of our hosts that's going to let us know about his uh, his first officer involved shooting Um, first and only first and only can you tell us a little bit about the time frame when did this
0: happen october 26 1979 about 6 p.m i've been on the street about five months give or take not very long i was still in the training phase this was pre-FTO days field training officer days so you got bounced around between senior officers and we had a rank back then called master patrolman generally they put you with a master patrolman if there wasn't a master patrolman available they would just put you with a an experienced senior guy Uh, I got assigned on that evening to ride with Brian Smythe We're going to get Brian on here and and have him go over his recollections of this event as well. But we were uh, riding the 2-3 district, which was northwest, kind of near northwest. Uh, As I recall, it was from about 10th Street to 50th from Santa Fe to Portland.
1: Um.
0: We got a call to pick up a an escapee from uh, what I used to call pre-escape centers, the uh, the little motels that DOC took over and made into uh, pre-release centers. Sure. Where Minimum security, almost a halfway house. Halfway. I don't know if they were a halfway house or, or it may have been, but they actually, a lot of them went out and worked during the day sure. and had to check in in the evening and that sort of thing. And this guy was uh, wanted for uh, uh, like a forgery. He 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 was in prison for a nonviolent offense, forgery, as I recall. I don't recall his name, um, but we we dispatch had received a telephone tip that he was at this location. Um, I think almost all these people are dead now, so I'm going to go ahead and name them by name. So. The uh, the apartments at 2212 and a half North Portland. Downstairs, it's a little frame, two story uh, structure. The bottom part was the Linhart sewing machine repair and sales uh, mm-hmm. business. Um, when we arrived at the scene, I. I I got five months on the street. street. I'm clueless. I'm thinking we're going to just go pick up this guy, and he's a nonviolent offender, and and we're going to take him back to DOC so they can let him go to work the next day in society. So uh, I didn't assess the threat at all. Probably an hour before that, there had been a broadcast of a pharmacy robbery, Ryan told me later that that had entered his mind when we arrived there. It it, it didn't to me at all. I, I vaguely remember being aware of that call, but when we got there, the the apartment it was the upstairs of the structure. The it was stairs like a,
2: were on the outside, right? Stairs were
0: on the north side of the building. Little wooden staircase. Uh, the, the apartment was rented by a woman named Dorothy Clark Potter. For some reason, 45 years later, I can remember all these people's first, middle, and last name. I can't yeah. tell you what I had for dinner last night, right. but um, Potter was the mother-in-law of the escapee so we got to the scene i went about around back initially brian went up the stairs knocked didn't initially receive a response i came back around uh to the to the staircase and about that time a person uh opened the door that person was Haroldine clifton clifton uh, um had multiple armed robbery convictions. Of course, we weren't aware of that at the time. And um, as I recall, he was obviously very nervous, and Brian talked to him, and there was something that triggered Brian that everything wasn't kosher, I think. It's a a 10-year veteran versus a five-month veteran. There you go. Reading that room and... So um, I think Brian asked if, were there other people and there were several. So we walk in and there was in addition to Clifton and Potter, mm-hmm. there was Martha Sue Locan, uh Diana Gale Woods, and uh Terry Lee Kinney were all visible. Were the
2: were these um just, uh, from your perspective now, not as a f- five-month police officer, what were these bikers? Were they criminal element? Were they? What was the? What's your take on
0: the kind of people they were? I remember thinking they were unsavory. <laughs> they yeah. they were rough, and it was a pretty good assessment. Uh, Diana Gel Woods. Had done, and she just passed away. I I used to keep up with these people, uh, just kind of do a database search every once in a while. See what they're up to, yeah. Uh, Woods and her husband had killed a guy and buried him behind a gas station around Melrose and Rockwell. Oh, yeah. That they thought was Was Don uh, Um, worked in auto theft. This would have been... Few years before, was it Claude Bart? No, Claude. Don Landis. Don Landis. Don Landis um, had worked undercover, and they thought this guy was Don Landis, and they killed him and buried him, thinking he's a cop, thinking he was an undercover cop, or a snitch. I think I didn't. I don't know if they knew which he was. One but of the two. The husband was still in jail. Diana had done a little bit of time and had been released. <clears throat> DLC is very adept at getting people out of prison. As quick as uh, they as can quick as them. they can, yeah. Uh I'm not a huge fan of DLC, no, but uh is. I got some good friends that work there, and don't get me wrong, they've got good people, but um anyway, that's a whole nother uh podcast. So um
2: so they're pretty much they're that 10th Street element that we all got
0: to. And, absolutely. They looked yeah. like people from 10th Street. And yeah. back in those days, 10th Street was a pretty wide open, active, a lot of biker activity, yeah. a lot of drug activity, a lot of. And, and by 10th Street, it wasn't just 10th Street. Yeah. It was that area around around yeah. it. You know, you had several bars at 10th and Walker, 10th Portland, 10th Meridian, 10th and MacArthur, there were small neighborhood bars, biker bars. As a matter of fact, directly south yeah, of, uh, of the where the shooting occurred was the Anchor Lounge, yeah. the old Anchor Lounge. That, that was, was biker, an outlaw, okay, outlaw hangout.
2: Well, we needed to do one whole uh,
0: podcast on bikers, if uh, it's, not more. It, bikers were always one of my fascinations, and yeah. and that I, whole. Uh, culture and and yeah. lifestyle so that's these the, the people just had that unsavory uh, if you'd asked me did i think they could be criminals uh, i would have said yes yeah uh locan i don't remember much about her but uh terry lee Kinney had um unknown to us had just been released from prison um on an armed robbery, had been convicted of a new robbery and was out on appeal bond at the time of the incident.
2: Well, also, I hate to keep interrupting you, but people need to understand this is a different world of police work. Mm -hmm. Your radio in your car was probably the highest tech device you had. we didn't have any. There was no
0: other tech. No computer. A gun, a badge, a few extra rounds, a set of handcuffs, a baton. Right. That was, that was your tech.
2: And you went there knowing you're going to gather data there rather than have a computer to yeah. find out about this location. Yeah. And, and,
0: and since we knew, the Potter had identified herself, and we had been notified that the, the mother-in-law, it was right. our apartment. So we knew we were in the right location and now we're starting to ask some questions it's still pretty much a consensual encounter um, so brian asked is there anybody else in the department and they said no so he said well can i look and they said yeah sure well he goes into the there's one bedroom and then there's a bathroom off of that bedroom he goes in the bath, bedroom when he opens the door there's a guy with one leg halfway out the window, and that was Claude Lee Willis. And Brian engages him, and he grabs a plunger and starts plunging on the toilet. And says, so, "Oh, we got to stop up." So, well, why were you halfway out the window? Oh, well, I'm just, I'm trying to fix this toilet. So, he goes, come out here. We need to talk. Now, the guy didn't have on a shirt. One of the things back then, tattoos weren't as common as they are now, right. they weren't as socially acceptable as they are now. Yeah, um, This guy had a lot of upper body tattoos and they were not professional tattoos. Jailhouse. They were jailhouse. Uh, and it's pretty easy to tell. Right. Uh, street or jailhouse tattoos versus a professional tattoo shop. He was pretty close. I don't remember the exact description of the person we were listen, uh, looking for, but he was pretty close to it. So he asked him to step outside, or I mean, to step out into the living room. So Brian asked him his name and he says, Willis. And he goes, okay, what's your first name? And I mean, what's your last name? And he goes, Claude. Well, Claude's my first name. Well, that, it turned out that was true. Um, so as he would ask questions, the other people would answer for the guy sometimes. Uh, So now we're, we're in this, we don't have enough really to arrest him because we don't know it is him. Um, but we've got some pretty good suspicions that we're, we're onto something. Right. So Brian asked him. If he will step outside and talk to us, get him away get from away the others. Get away from cry. the others, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he agrees. And uh, the others are calling him Fuzzy. Uh, hey, Fuzzy, it's all right. It's okay, Fuzzy. And he goes, Well, can I put on a shirt? And he says, Yeah. And one of the other guys tosses the shirt over to him or hands it to him. I don't really recall. There's a chance the firearm was secreted in the, the shirt that they passed off. I don't believe so. And my recollection is Brian actually kind of gave it a squeeze Just or touch to, to see if there was anything in it. And now keep in mind, this is a very... Th- that whole apartment probably wasn't over 500 square feet. It's a small building. Um, and we... St- when you entered in from the, the landing of the staircase, the first thing you did, you were in a little utility, like a washer and a dryer We were in there. Uh, so I kind of stepped back. The uh, Willis steps out. Brian's right behind him. Willis is putting on the shirt. He like the
2: platform down. at the top, like the landing.
0: Yeah, we're in the, the we're in the utility room moving towards the landing. Of the stairs outside. Which is like three or four steps. I yeah. mean it was it's small very place. close. So that now there's three of us, very small, and I'm trying to keep an eye on all these other people. And as we hit the landing, my recollection is Willis takes one step down. Brian is on the landing, and I'm directly behind Brian. There's not probably, I'm gesturing with my arm like people can see it, but there's probably not an arm's length from Willis to me. We're all three within this very small space. Um, I remember that he gets the shirt on, and my recollection is he makes a hard turn to the right, which would be north. My assessment is he's going to jump off of the rail, jump over the rail, and flee. I'm still not thinking right potential threat.
2: Well, yeah, uh,
0: I'm just thinking he's an escapee that's wanting to escape again. Right. Um, I see Brian grab towards him, and I. Think I started leaning in, and now he has rotated to where he and Brian are pretty well face to face. And like I say, five month rookie, I'm I'm trying to process what the hell's going on. Right. Uh, the next thing I realize is I can see Brian and him struggling, and. From behind him, I'm looking over Brian's shoulder at him. I'm looking over Brian's right shoulder at him, facing Brian, and I see Brian's hands and his hands coming up towards Brian's face, and he's got a he's got a revolver, and Brian has it locked. And Brian's got both hands on it. I didn't know at the time, but learned after Brian said. I had it locked to where the cylinder couldn't turn. Like and that's something that they used to train us yeah. in, back in the day in the revolver days. yeah, Because with a revolver, if you can't work the action, you've got a, you've got a club. That's right. what I mean. So he had it locked down. Now I perceive the threat. You right. know, and I see the gun going from Brian's shoulder towards his face. Uh, Brian told me later that when I fired my first round, he was looking down the barrel. The the, the gun was and just, the only thing
2: preventing him from being shot was his lock on the cylinder. And
0: he he had, or the guy would have would have killed him, killed us both. Really, you know, in hindsight. Brian credits me with saving him. I credit Brian with was, was saving me. Uh, Brian had an accurate assessment of what was going on. I didn't. Yeah, uh, I, Brian, tried to,
2: I tried to tease him about that. And, you know, cops are hard on each other. Yeah. We joke hard. Yeah. And I think I hurt his feelings, or at least his son's feelings. And it was just... To for you know how we go at each other, but anyone to go ahead,
0: yeah. Well, both he and uh, Brian, I can tell, is kind of moving hard left. I remember drawing my firearm, we were taught in the academy that you know, part of our course of fire was at the three yard line, you did a below eye level shooting. I remember going into that kind of stance. I think I had what they would call a roll-by, which is where when you're on a double-action revolver mm-hmm. where you do an incomplete uh, trigger press. You and stop somewhere, in. And, and, and what happens is then you release, and then you pull through. So instead of firing what would have been the first up round, I fired the second up. I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know if that's a figment of my imagination. Yeah. But I, I remember it pretty vividly. And I finally, I fired my first round. Brian told me that he could feel the muzzle blast, again, shooting a three fifty seven oh, Magnum. Yeah. And I'm probably less than three inches from his back, shooting to his the right side of him. So I'm sure it was like getting punched.
2: It's uh, a muzzle blast,
0: you mean? With the muzzle blast, yeah. Where where, where are you pointing? <coughs> where is that? Where are you lined up on the the bad guy? I hit him, and the only reason I know where I was lined up was I hit him. <coughs> excuse me. The only reason I know where where I was lined up is I hit him in the low left abdomen. Okay. I I mean, yeah, it would be his left because he had rotated to face us. I saw his shirt kind of poof out when when that round hit. Brian told me he thought he was being shot from the back by the others.
2: From your shot?
0: Yeah. He thought my shot was the others. Somebody was shooting him in the back and he said I just determined I was gonna hang on to that revolver until I couldn't. Yeah. Um, from there, everything, the thing that we were talking about in our officer-involved shooting episode, all of those things kicked in. It, it, it's almost surreal what happens. Uh, I remember my vision just kind of focusing in tunnel vision. He became Willis became almost like a police silhouette target, a B-27 target yeah. that we used to qualify. I don't remember features or anything else. I couldn't tell you. I, I'm three foot from the guy. I don't remember any expression. I don't remember facial features looking at me or anything like right. that. I continued to fire, and my rounds sounded like they were a mile away. Yes, yeah. poof. Yeah, and I remember cars going by on Portland uh, in the background, but no detail. Just you know, it was it was almost like watching a like a tunnel vision where you can see other activity, but you can't. It's not registering. Not really registering. I remember at some point I'd shot a five seventy two on the match five in the academy, which was a uh, academy record until I think Bill Weaver beat it five or six years later. And I remember thinking, I shot a 572 and I'm missing this guy at three Mm -hmm. feet because there was no visible effects. There was no visible effects that I could see considering the way I was perceiving what was happening.
2: Yeah, Bear in mind, although movies weren't as bloody then, they still had some, you know, like I went to see Big Jake with Dad, the John Wayne movie when I was little, scared the hell out of me, you know, with the shooting parts of it. But your mind's looking for those things you've seen in movies to happen. It's not like that.
0: No, not at all. There There was very little blood uh, that I could observe, right. I could see no effect in my shots, which was tremendously frightening. Yeah, uh, at some he's point, not going down. And he all. was, but I didn't really perceive it. What it's it because I didn't make a hit that would instantly incapacitate. Right. basically, he was still struggling over the gun. But falling backwards,
2: at what point in there did you perceive the threat was over?
0: Well, at the next thing I recall perceiving is somebody else shooting it It was Smythe, I didn't know it. Smythe had actually turned at some point the guy Willis released his grip of the gun, and Smythe turned the gun around, yeah, and starts firing. So now I'm hearing poof, poof. So poof, poof, and you know it's like it's still not registering. I had no idea where those shots were coming from. Um, and then the same way that it, he went to a silhouette. It's like a, re- and it right. was it was also like watching an old eight millimeter movie on frame by frame. Mm-hmm. You would it would like click in the next view click, yeah. and it was it was just like I say it was very surreal. Uh, At some point, I realized that he was almost down just as I fired my last round, and I saw it impact on his left thigh. When that hit, there was an immediate reaction. It it almost looked like his leg blew up. What I didn't know at the time was he had a bottle of Dilaudid. They were the... Pharmacy heart hijackers that they had pull, uh. put out earlier in the day, uh, and he had a big Dilaudid was the OxyContin of the day, right? And uh, the fentanyl of the day, and he uh, he had a big bottle of Dilaudid in his pocket, and my round had hit that bottle. My round or or, or, or Brian's round had hit that bottle of Dilaudid. I'm all it. I fired and saw the reaction, so I, I think it was my round, right. and I don't recall in the reports. Um, he lands on the staircase. I forgot to mention earlier, one of the guys, one of the other people had given him a cigarette before we headed out, so he had a cigarette in his mouth. Well, when he hits the stairs, he still got the cigarette in his mouth. But his eyes are already fixed and starting to kind of glaze. I don't know if I remember this or if Brian told me, but he said he said, "Are you okay?" He said I kind of laughed and said, "I think so." Uh, I've got no, no real right, re- yeah. remembrance of that. I thought uh, Willis laid. He landed with his his foot kind of tangled in the. Uh, the banister uh i thought i kicked his foot loose and he slid down to the bottom brian said i reached down with my hand and pulled his foot loose from and the banister yeah from just yeah just with you know the upright portion of the banister his foot had kind of entangled in it and it was he was on the the, the, the actual stairs. Of course, I am wanting to ask the place because I know we've still got five that's, or six assholes. That's what
2: I was going to ask you. Did they, they ever come out?
0: <laughs> it's really weird how things happen. I immediately turned towards them because I perceived them as a threat, and one of them, and I believe it was Potter, stepped towards me. And says, "Is he okay, or something to that effect?" And I said, "Call nine one one." Well, we didn't even have nine one one. I think I said, "Call an ambulance or yeah. something like." It. It, a lot of people won't believe, but Oklahoma City was pretty late to the nine one one day. Oh gap. yeah, two three one two one two one was our emergency number. It's
2: kind of hard to dial too when you're yeah.
0: So I pulled his foot loose. He slides to the bottom. I step around the corner. I did what a couple people uh, I know a gun rider named uh Rob Garrett and Rob called it a tactical reload. i would never been trained it. I don't know where it came from. I popped the cylinder open on my Model 19, spotted the primer that didn't have a dent in it, put my thumb on it, unloaded the five empties, reloaded real quick. Yeah. At some point Smythe looked at me and says, I shot him with his own gun. Uh, While we're down there, we've called for help. And I didn't realize it, but I don't think the smoke had cleared before units started showing up. Well, at some point, somebody from anchor lounge comes out and says there's somebody trying to get in our back door so my thought is one of the other assholes has jumped out and is going in to the bar Well, I run around the corner and there's this guy and his eyes get big when I draw down on him and uh, we don't even exchange words the door opens and he just falls into the bar (laughs) out of sight so I run back he wasn't one of the people I'd seen so I wasn't worried about it. We get back, and then from there, you know, everybody starts showing up, and then you go down to police headquarters, go to the homicide unit. One of the most—I've always been a little bit of a gun guy, and my Model 19, I had a 4-inch nickel 19. I've since passed passed on to Brian. Uh, It was kind of my pride and joy, you know, well— it happened at six PM, and back then everything non-emergency shut down at four PM. Still does, I right. think. Uh, well, they had a shopping cart that you would book uh, guns or property into I after remember shopping hours. And put, carts. I had to put a tag on my Model Nineteen oh, that's and lay it on top of all the R and oh, RGS. God and, uh, you know, Saturday night specials, Raven 25s, and ice picks. And Nowadays, they take officers out and allow them to test fire their gun and then return their gun to them.
1: So was this, just out of curiosity, who made contact with you at that point and said, hey, we're going to have to have you book in your weapon? Uh, was Was that a homicide detective? Was it your supervisor? I believe... You, I thought I you had believe- a
2: detective on call come out.
0: Well, they sent out a couple. We had Richard Stickney. Yeah. Richard, I never knew that well, uh, but I believe he was an auto theft detective who was just, back then they ran a day detective, night detective. I believe Ron Chambers showed up, T. Martin. It was a full shift day, and T. Martin was the sergeant and i believe it was t who kind of took over t's a wonderful person and uh you know he was the one that was kind of guiding me along there's pictures i've shared that i'll share again of me standing beside the car in a with a desperately in desperate need of a haircut because getting a haircut was was not a high priority i was still in the run and gun and you know everything was so much fun, and
2: i I always wondered if you got in trouble for that because I, even when I came on hair hair was a big issue grooming was, was a big issue
0: as we as we discussed, law enforcement a lot of times is result based right so since that was at least everything initially was perceived as being good at good shooting. There was no problem. Had it been a bad shooting oh, or been had there the been list. other issues, I'm sure I'd have got a letter for, for failing to follow grooming standards. But and it wasn't. Luckily, I have enough curl in my hair. It was going up, not down, and uh, it wasn't below my ears, and it wasn't on the collar. So technically, one I was in policy.
2: One of the aspects that we discussed earlier on just procedural differences that has always kind of scared the shit out of me on your time frame was it wasn't uncommon in your day at that time if you're in a shooting to go before a judge
0: well they offered that to me it was uh they uh they they came up uh and i don't remember it was homicide uh, it was one of the homicide detectives said, Do "You want us to file murder on you?" And I said, "Well, hell no! I don't want you to file murder mm-hmm. on me." The the theory being that if they filed murder, you went in front of a bench trial, you went in front of a judge on a, and the judge would pronounce you not guilty, and then jeopardy attaches, and right, and if you got an activist DA or somebody later, they couldn't come back and Which charge is you.
2: an interesting point with all these DA decline cases is any one of them could be looked at again by mm-hmm. a new
0: DA if it's a you know if it's a lethal shooting uh, there is no statute of limitations right. so and you know DOJ has found ways around that to where you know you still can be prosecuted and it was i think it was just that that would be a scary thing to be asked oh it, it, it terrifying me uh, there was some concern over whose round was the lethal round. There'd been a Chicago officer convicted, not somewhere in the relative close past to the event, uh, where an officer had disarmed a bank robber. He yeah. The officer was just in line, and the guy in front of him pulls bank robbery. Officer decides to jump him. They. The officer takes the guy down. They wrestle over the gun. The officer managed to turn the gun and kill the suspect, and was convicted of a, a manslaughter-type charge for shooting an unarmed individual. Yeah, and there were some concerns that that might that that was a possibility at that time. Now, keep in mind, this was during I think Handy Coates was the DA. My my uh, clearance letter signed by Arlene Joplin, who was his first assistant, who later, I think the last I heard, she was on the court of, uh, of either civil or criminal appeals. She's since retired, I believe. Right? It's a
2: <laughs> it, it's always frustrating to me when they try to cut that thin line like that. Yeah. Fighting with a guy over his gun and using that gun on him, is a whole lot different than taking a gun away from someone, them then using it against them as they're trying to flee or whatever. As
0: as I recall, Brian's response when asked, why did you shoot him after he was unarmed? He said, somebody tried to kill me once. I wasn't going to give him another chance. Exactly. It's in the process of fighting with the
2: guy over his gun.
0: It wasn't like... He took the gun and after he slid down, went down and gave him that's what I'm some talking, coup that's de gras, meant, you know, yeah. like an ursuline type case. Uh, and that well, also, you, you know, can this stir is up some, people with that one. Well, we'll, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to do. I, one. I've, I've got a lot that. of insight on that case. I, I spent a lot of time on it, and uh, you know, it's a sad case in a lot of ways, but. There's only one person <laughs> really to blame for I know uh, for his predicament.
1: Let me ask you just in the immediate aftermath of you firing shots, um, it was pretty clear to you, and your partner, uh, his intentions. It was pretty clear after the shots have been fired. Probably he's on the ground and unresponsive, and that he's probably deceased. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some some talk in. Uh, you know procedurally for officers involved in an officer involved shooting to start immediately rendering aid mm-hmm. um how how long did that take in that particular time period This is a different time when paramedics yeah. were trained differently how long did it take we, until you got some help
0: we had AmCare back then before the predecessor to imsa uh, my recollection is they were on scene within a minute or two Two you, or three at the most, which is still a long them? time. It, no, I asked Dorothy Clark Potter to call him for me. Oh, that's yes. right. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. I think when Smythe made the radio call, he probably said, which was pretty standard, uh, you know, officer involved, send homicides, <laughs> send EMSA. Uh, I remember them showing up and starting to work on him, and and Brian said something to the effect of, "Don't bother, he's deader than shit," right, uh, which he was. And they put a couple <laughs> strips on him, looked at him, and said, "Yeah," packed their stuff, and left. Um, it and you know this is something we we neglected to talk about in our over officer involved shooting overview. I didn't go into work that day, hoping to get into a shooting. I've heard people talk about trigger happy cops. In my career, I never met anybody that says I can't wait to bust a cap on somebody. It's right. It just it it's one of those things that you prepare for, and you train that in the the possibility that it could happen. But it happened to one. T- I I did thirty. With all my time together, UN time, DA's office, doing work for the postal inspectors, OCPD, I've got 30-some years of experience. That was the one time I used my firearm. Right. There were probably hundreds of times that I could have used my firearm uh, and was able to either through my efforts, other officers' efforts, or the suspect simply changing the what they were doing able to deescalate and 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 avoid a shooting. But I I think the if anybody out there thinks officers are just looking for an opportunity to shoot, that's not been my experience.
2: I I I think there's a lot of that especially these days more so than there were in the past and a lot of that has to be higher capacity and things like that where you have more rounds to shoot but well and, and it's at the end of the day you're trying to save your own life Yeah, and it's real hard to criticize someone else on little differences in the way they handle something or whatever when that
0: that's a life or death struggle for that person you know or perceived to be. There's good shootings and there's bad shootings. Right. Bad shootings are not all the same. Most of the bad shootings I have seen was or were incidents where an officer made mistakes in judgment, let the wasn't able to, you know, properly identify threats. Very few of them are what I would, and and that can be a criminal action. You know, manslaughter laws, you can be, think you're doing right and be doing wrong. Right. But it's different than someone having the intent. It's, It's, you know, several of the high profile cases here in Oklahoma City. You look at them, and there might have been a judgment issue, but I don't believe there was criminal intent in right. most of them that I was aware of. Yeah. So and it's it's a, they're tremendously uh, traumatic. Been, mine was four and a half decades ago, right. and just sitting here talking now, I can feel my heart rate right. go up. I can feel that stress.
1: Tell us a little bit about that anxiety about, the process by which you waited to know if you were cleared on your yeah. shooting and your yeah, return. How long was yeah. it back
0: then? Uh, it wasn't very long at all. Uh, mine was the third fatal shooting in 10 days. Was it? So they told me they were going to keep me on the ground a little bit longer. They didn't want to give the appearance that they were just cranking them out. So I was suspended for a week and told to go see the... Uh, Department psychologist. We just hired a department psychologist. Uh, What's is not I just I went blank. He I just passed away too. about a year ago. Oh, he did? Yeah. Uh, Hoyt Morris. Uh, so the, we go back to work and uh, a day or two into normal return to work. Well, well, let me back up. We have the shooting review board within a week of the shooting. We're cleared and instructed to go see the, the psychologist. Brian, pretty old school guy. He's like, fuck that. I'm not going to go see a psychologist. Right. Uh, so we just went back to work. And a uh, couple days go by, and one of the sergeants, I don't remember which was. This was before OCPD re-ranked everybody. Sergeant right. was your first line Supervisor, right. whereas now it's a lieutenant. Said, hey, did you go see the shrink? And I said, uh, not yet. And they said, all right, you need to get that done. I said, okay. And a day or two more go by, and they came up and they said, you make that appointment yet? And I said, no. And they said, well, if you haven't done it by next week, you're suspended. Ah, shit, I better do it. So I call up, make an appointment with his secretary. I go up, his office was on the third floor, just the opposite end of the building where the chief's office was, and I I go up and knock on the door, and he waves me in, and he says, can I help you? And I say, yeah, I'm Gary Eastridge. He goes, what can I help you with? And I said, well, I got an appointment to see you. I was involved in the shooting a week and a half, two weeks ago, and he's, oh, you have any trouble? I said, no, and he goes, well, if you do, give me a call. <laughs> I was like, they threatened to suspend me over (laughs) Over this? this? But the only thing, I said, I do have one question for you. I said, during the incident, I was shooting unsighted, below eye level as we were trained. I don't remember. I have no conscious memory of making sure my partner was out of the way when I was firing those rounds. And he said, well a lot of times your brain processes things that you're not really aware are being processed. Yeah. And several of my now back then that's that's like I it terrified me that I could have accidentally shot Brian in the back. But all of my his the left side of the suspect's body was all that was exposed. My shots were from center line and down and to the left. So I, I like to comfort myself in saying that my brain was, my little brain was processing uh, that data. And that's, that
2: goes back to a lot of the stuff we're talking about that we nobody understood back then, except yeah. for shrinks, yeah, is that your brain takes action even when you're not even aware you're doing it. Well, you and I have touched
0: on in the past, just sitting here doing this is therapeutic, just sitting right. here talking. So, the objections I had over talking to a psychologist in hindsight, that's what I needed to do. You know, what I got real tired of. Is guys coming up and slapping you on the back and go, hey man, you did a good job. Right. Well, I didn't feel I, I felt like because it uh, that I had done something wrong, or we wouldn't have let the event happen. Uh, and so, you, you know, you didn't really want to open up with them. You couldn't really open up with family in great detail because, right. like you say, cops communicate different. And it it was hard. It, it, I've I've said before, the hardest thing for me was number one calling Brian's mom. Brian's oh, yeah. mom. It happened at six o'clock. I knew it was going to be on the news, and I knew right. there was cameras around filming while I'm standing there being talked to by detectives. I I just I knew I had to call her, but it was just. It was it was hard, and then letting mom and dad know. Yeah, mom and dad very religious, oh, and say, yeah. "Hey, I, I just took a life." Right. It's a
2: it's a lot to process, and it's a lot for, a lot for those around you to process. Yeah. You know, your family don't know how to approach you. Yeah.
1: What was the now, department's? So I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what was the department support system at that point? Was there a chance None. program? None, Zero.
2: Nothing. No. Nothing. Go back to work. It is your it was the thing that you really aren't crazy to I, hear is what he's talking about, is your coworkers are all, you know, high five in and, and that you on the that's back. counter
0: for me was counterproductive because while I f- I had reservations about it but I also felt like we had done what we had to do to survive right uh, but there was there was no the FOP this was pre-chaps and this was pre they've got a peer support and a wellness unit now this was before all of that stuff but I want to touch on uh, real quick two two little backstories there Claude Lee Willis the guy that we shot uh had abducted a couple in Tulsa in 1969, had received, I think, a combined sentence of somewhere around 170 years, and my favorite state agency, DOC, had saw fit to let uh, him out after serving 10 years. Yeah, Um, 10 years of 100 years. They warned me, they being the police department, said, hey, you might get crank calls, you might get letters that, all the way from your a murderer to high-fiving and people wanting to uh, give you religious guidance since you violated one of the Ten Commandments and that sort of thing. I was laying in bed probably. I think I was still suspended. I won't say it was about three days. And I was listed in the phone book. Like a dumbass. Yeah. Well, I, I think never thought about it. You just, had
2: to pay to not be. Yeah, it, it? cost money, and I didn't have any yeah. money to pay that. Sin? No.
0: So I'm laying in bed one night, about one in the morning. My phone rings. Well, this pre caller ID also. So, you know, you, I'm like, I, in hindsight, I should have just ignored it. But I answer the phone. The guy goes, "Is this Officer Eastwood?" I was like, "Ah, oh, shit, here it goes." I go, "Yes." He goes you have a little problem with Claude Lee Willis? And I said, well, you might say that, yeah. And he goes, well, I don't know the details, but I hope you blew his head off. And I said, well, I don't think he knows the difference. But, well, the guy goes on to tell me, he was obviously drunk, uh, and he goes on to tell me that Willis had run over his son and was out on a manslaughter bond at the time of the shooting. He had went to work in the oil field and was driving an oil field truck and ran over this guy's son on him who was on a motorcycle
2: Oh, really? and
0: he said i'm a korean vet and if you need anything you call me day or night and all that and then uh i ne- i never knew that you never knew that oh. yeah that was uh just one of those uh, little side stories then the other one which i find fascinating it's just probably not that big a deal to most but terry lee Kenny, uh, he gets convicted on his robbery the new robbery and he's sent to prison well one of my old partners who should go nameless unless he calls up and says i haven't heard from him in years and years uh he he calls me up and he says hey i want you to meet my new wife uh Are you going down to the, we had the FOP club back then, and there was some party coming up. And he said, you going to be there? I said, yeah. So I go down to the club and he introduces me to her. She's Terry Lee Kenny's sister. And she says, I want you to write a letter to the parole board recommending him for pardon or parole. And I said, well, I don't think I could do that. And she talked, and she was sweet, sweet woman she sees turned his life around he's he's found religion and he's this and he's that and uh you know he'll never make that mistake again so um i said well i won't write a letter yet but here's what i'll do if you arrange for me to go down and sit face to face and talk to him I will consider writing a letter. And this was probably six, eight years after the shooting. He got, I think, 99 years. Uh, Well, I never heard back. Well, fast forward to, and we need Tanya in for this one, but uh, fast forward to about... 2009 or 2010 there was a little group they called the pantyhose bandits and they were mm -hmm. robbing you know back in our day there wasn't banks in grocery stores well this was after they started putting banks in walmarts and that sort of thing and for some reason they were hitting those banks uh they didn't even have a real gun. They had a piece of PVC or a piece of wood dowel they painted black. Oh, boy. made it look like uh, penalties the same. Right. Uh, but they were pulling several armed robberies. Tanya was one of the investigators on it, and they ended up making Terry Lee Kenny. So apparently whatever reform he had found while he was in prison. Uh, left him once he hit the street. He was yeah. a bad drug addict, which we all know that. Yeah, but uh, I,
2: I see that differently. If you'd have just written that letter,
0: Gary, he would have changed his life. Yeah, yeah. Well, that one I'm not going to harbor a lot of guilt over. But well, that's, that's a, my story. That's a great
1: first-hand one. perspective, and uh, we look forward to hearing from Kyle on uh, on both of his shootings as well.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EI podcast. Be sure to check out our sponsors at the AmericanFightingRevolver.com, EastridgeInvestigations.com, RNGFirearms.net, and EDC Belt Company. Links to our sponsors' websites will be at the bottom of the podcast posting.